guest is Yaroslav Svelk. Svelk, is that correct? Svelk, yeah. Um, and Yaroslav is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bergen and assistant professor at Charles University in Prague. He is the author of the monograph Gaming the Iron Curtain, How Teenagers and Amateurs in Communist Czechoslovakia Claimed the Medium of Computer Games, which is on MIT Press. Uh, he has published research on history and theory of computer games, on humor in games and social media, and on the grammar Nazi phenomenon. His work has been published in journals including New Media and Society, International Journal of Communication, or Game Studies, and in anthologies published by Oxford University Press, Bloomsbury, and others. He is currently researching history, theory, and reception of monsters in games. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, words about the series. So, yes. um, this is part of a lecture series that bridges art, culture, and technology, as well as the Department of Comparative Media Studies and Writing. Um, and in the history of these two departments, um, there's times when there's a lot of uh, a lot of bridges in between. Um, so, if we think of art as sensitizing, um, and art ACT, where I teach, uh, was founded on this idea of. Um, how artists can collaborate with people outside of the white box and really experiment and work with scientists or storytellers writ broadly. Um, so it's a, it's a wonderful and powerful and meaningful connection between the two, two departments that we're um, forging a new where we have rekindling. Mm -hmm. um, and then a heads up about the next talk, which is on Wednesday, April 10th, and it's uh, Lauren Boyle from DIS. Um, and they're a, a collective based in New York. Um, and they do, um, I think they really embody also similarly the spirit between ACT and CMSW, which is um, they produce journalism, but in this really uh, kind of hybrid storytelling fashion that bridges art and journalism. Um, so we welcome you to that as well. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Good. Can you ask why was it prominent in Czechoslovakia and not the other countries behind the current I'm sorry? Yeah, okay. So you can ask questions whenever you want. And the answer to this question is um, I'm not saying that it was only prominent there. It's just, it's my field. So it's where I did my research. Uh, I cannot make that claim. And I'm not making that claim. I, I mean, um, Czechoslovakia, out of the Eastern European countries in the Soviet bloc in the 1980s, computer games as a means of expression seems to be, I mean, based on current research, it seems that that was the country where it was kind of used to the most, you know, to most like diverse means or to, to most diverse purposes. But I think we still kind of are waiting for research on other countries, which hasn't been done yet. Um, we will address yeah, that at the, at the end. we can save for the Q&A session. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. So yeah, uh, thanks so much for coming. This is, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. I was, uh, I actually have a lot of connections with uh, CMSW. I was a PhD, um, I mean, I was a visiting PhD student here uh, 10 years ago. And I'm, you know, very grateful for that experience. I think it was like a pivotal point in my career and in my life. And, uh, and um, you know, many of the people who were here at that point and are 
are still here, or some of them have left, have been really influential on me, including William uh, and Philip Zan, who's not here today, but Henry Jenkins, who was uh, who was faculty, and um, and other and other members, uh, former and current of this of this department. And I would like to thank Vivek and uh, and Marissa for making this happen, and also to Caroline and AJ for hosting me in Boston. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about uh, this book that just came out. And I'm, I'm just going to pass this around because there's a table of contents. And I think, you know, I cannot cover everything that's in the book just in this talk. So, you know, if you, if you find something in the book that you think is interesting and you, you would like to ask about, please feel free to do so. Um, it is a book that focuses on uh, Czechoslovakia in the 1980s and about uh, on, on how amateurs and kids were using computer games in very unexpected ways. Um, yeah, the book came out uh, very recently, and I think that the the spirit of CMSW and is, is very um, you know fundamental to to the to the whole project. I was really looking at how people used technology to you know to engage, to participate, uh, to to be creative, and to be heard. Um, um, so, so I'm in many ways kind of following up on work that has been uh, done in this in this department. Although I'm applying it to maybe um, a context that is a bit unexpected, and I think that it's really important to look at contexts that are otherwise not really well described. Um, I think it's um, in the, in the words of Sandra Bramman, who wrote the introduction to this amazing book, "I'm Not a Network Nation," by Ben Peters. Uh, she praises the disorientation that results when the familiar is encountered in an unfamiliar context, broadening and deepening what we believe that we know about the familiar. Um, so investigating how computer networks were being designed in the Soviet Union can really tell us new things about computer networks and the potential that they have. And similarly, looking at computer games in you know, communist Czechoslovakia can reveal many uh, you know, unthought um, um, potential um, you know, possibilities of what people can express with computer games. Um, this talk will not be very theoretical because I think that um, you come from different disciplines and I think that I will just, I will mostly just tell stories. Uh, we can kind of address, you know, more theoretical implications in the Q&A. But just to show you where I'm coming from, um, I am most of my work has been in the field of game studies, so focusing on computer games as a medium and sort of uh, exploring the potential of that medium. Um, I was also, just given my background here at, this, at, uh, at CMS, back then it was CMS, now it's CMSW, I was also inspired by cultural and fan studies uh, work by authors such as Henry Jenkins, looking at how people use technologies creatively to participate in communities. I was looking, um, I'm looking at these kind of bottom-up activities that are you know, not preordained, something that kind of, uh, emerges organically in communities that work with technology, in this case, microcomputers. I'm also inspired by science and technology studies and sort of history in, of technology in general. This might, to some, this might be a strange combination, but I think that looking at the technology as an actor of sorts is also important because technologies, especially in the 1980s, I mean, the microcomputers that people were using were quite limited. I mean, uh, you could not display you know, fast animation and graphics on those computers. So people were using these in different ways. You know, they were, for instance, using text 
to tell stories rather than you know audio audio visuals. And uh, I think the the final major source of inspiration is uh, is uh, history as a discipline, uh, regional history, uh, history of technology, that which I've mentioned. And uh, out of the sort of methodological approaches, uh, one that I found very inspiring is Alltagsgeschichte, which is uh, sort of a German school of historiography that focuses on sort of micro histories, uh, on the history of everyday life. In direct translation, this means history of everyday life. Um, so I'll be I'll be showing you stories of individuals. Uh, I'll be connecting them to the general context, but a lot of my research is based on these individual stories. Another important thing is for you to know like what I'm basing, basing this, this, these stories on. So I'm mostly uh, looking at amateurs. So these were not activities or games produced by the government or big companies. So there's actually not that much archival material about these games. Um, there are really no institutional archives that would preserve information about them. Um, so I had to actually go and talk to the people. So I did over 50 interviews for this project. I was traveling uh, around the country, mostly on a train. It's a, it's a small country, uh, but you know, still I made a substantial uh, amount of travel. This is the actual uh, voice recorder that I was using. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was looking at period documents. Um, I'll be talking about computer clubs. Um, and in these computer clubs, you know, people were publishing um, newsletters, for example. These were not sort of officially published magazines, so they cannot really be found in libraries. But uh, people have kept them and are archiving them. Some of them you can even find scanned online in these fan-run archives. And a collaboration with, uh, with fans and with you know, uh, uh, sort of retro gaming enthusiasts was also an important part of my research. Um, so it, in a way, it was participatory in this, in this way that I kind of had to participate in the community uh, to actually be able to get, get the information I needed. Um, I'll be showing you some material artifacts, um, <coughs> hardware that people you know, were creating in the 1980s, or you know, um, sort of these bootleg cassette tapes, um, often provided by the interviewees, uh, by my informants. Um, they were very generous to me. And also the games themselves. I'll be talking about, you know, maybe about a dozen games. I've played all of the games that I'll be talking about, mostly using emulators, um, software that, you know, kind of emulates older computers on your newer computer. Although, I also have access to original hardware. And um, now I'll spend some time talking about the context. Uh, then I will talk about computer clubs and what kinds of people gathered there and what the activities were that unfolded there. And I think in the, the second half of this talk, I will be mostly talking about games and uh, sort of activist games that were being made in the 1980s. So first, uh, a few basic facts about Czechoslovakia in the 1980s. So my research is delimited uh, more or less by the 80s. So I'm mostly looking at how people are using 8-bit computers in that decade. At that time, Czechoslovakia was a country behind the Iron Curtain, which meant many different things. Um, so it was a country with centrally planned, top-down managed economy. Uh, there was no private enterprise at all. There was quite strict censorship. Um, the flow of 
um, goods and information from the West was limited. It was not impossible, but it was limited. Uh, on the one hand, there were export embar embargoes on the Western side, so they were kind of they were afraid of exporting sensitive technology to the East, which could be used for the, for military purposes, for instance. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, there were limitations on on you know the other side of the Iron Curtain. So there were there was uh, lack of hard currency reserves, which meant that you didn't really have money to pay the Western technology with. Uh, the customs fees were high, and uh, you know, you know, and there was an actual Iron Curtain. Uh, you couldn't just like you know cross the cross the border. There was it was everything was heavily guarded. Um, yeah, um, maybe the size of the country is kind of relevant. It had a, it had about 15 million inhabitants at that point. Now, I mean, the country doesn't exist anymore. Now it's Czechia and Slovakia separated in 1993. Um, the geographical position is also location is also kind of important. So you can see this one of the westernmost countries in the Soviet bloc. So it it had uh, there were some opportunities for contact with Western countries, and very often. Um, hardware and software flowed into Czechoslovakia through the more, let's say, liberal countries of the Soviet bloc, like through Hungary and Yugoslavia, which was not part of the Soviet bloc, although it was a state socialist country, or through Poland. Out of all those, out of, out of those countries, Czechoslovakia was the most conservative and most dogmatic in terms of, sort of applying this um, sort of top-down um, uh, model of government, uh, governmental control. Okay, but we should not uh, imagine Czechoslovakia as just this kind of uh, poor backwater country where, you know, there was really no technology. It was actually a heavily industrialized country with a large urban population, and um, throughout the fifties, the economy was growing quite extensively thanks to kind of heavy industrialization. And um, you know, uh, there was you know, the auto industry, uh, manufacturing was, was booming, but um, you know, producing beautiful cars such as the uh, Škoda 1000 MB, which didn't make it to the US, unfortunately, but was popular you know, in many European countries. Um, but this sort of extensive growth hit um, you know, a, a barrier in the early 1960s when it started to be clear that without uh, that this sort of top-down model of management of economy doesn't really allow for um, technological innovation, and that is when Czechoslovakia was hit uh, with a crisis um, from which it never really kind of recovered. Um, um, and one of the reasons is that the sort of the technology policies of the country were very aimless, and we can sort of show that on the example of microcomputers <coughs> as well. So uh, just, uh, just to show you how aimless this was and also to um, kind of give you a bit of the atmosphere of the 1980s so, so that you can kind of see and hear the, the jargon of the Communist Party in the 1980s. <laughs> so this is, uh, this is a resolution, uh, a Communist Party convention resolution from 1981 speaking about the need for, you know, introducing new technology. They say, for the fulfillment of the decisive tasks of the national economy, fast development of electrotechnical industry, namely microelectronics and automation tools, is critical. For that, it is necessary to create uh, cadres 
and material conditions for expeditious application of electronics and microelectronics in all branches of the national, national economy. And this, this really makes no sense. It's completely circular. It's like we need more technology to have more technology. Um, and the sort of the, the strategy at that time was uh, that electronics and computers would be just this sort of catalyst uh, that would sort of boost the existing branches of the economy, like the auto industry. Uh, but there was no kind of vision of, of, of for use of microcomputers in the home settings or um, in entertainment or anything like that. So the primary goal was to use computers in the sort of manufacturing process to make it more um, to make it more efficient. Um, but people were calling for microcomputers. They knew that you know in the in the, in the West it was you know it was get, it was becoming more and more common to actually own a microcomputer. And there was a lot of enthusiast uh, that um, you know, demanded computers from the government, basically. And as late as 1988, the advisor to the Minister of Electrotechnical Industry said that as a society, we are not mature enough for the general use of microcomputers, kind of shrugging off all these demands. Um, so the um, Czechoslovak government at that time didn't really see um, Home microcomputer as, as as a priority. They did produce some microcomputers, which were usually um, kind of bigger and less powerful than the Western counterparts, such as these, the IQ one fifty one and the PMD eighty five, and uh, these were never released to the general market, so you could not actually buy them in stores. They were sold directly to institutions, to schools, or sometimes to computer clubs. Yeah, they were. They were using Intel and that semiconductor, uh, you know, all the same chips. Yeah, uh, they were mostly, some of them were clones of the same chips. Yeah. Uh, both of these were based on 8088. Okay. Yeah, some of them, on, yeah, most of them actually on this on this chip. Some of them, some of them on Xilog Z80, on like the East German clones. Same ones we were using. Yeah, yeah, same, same ones. But manufactured mostly in Eastern Europe as clones, yeah. So, so these computers were being manufactured, but you couldn't you couldn't buy them at a store. So, I mean, people had some other options. Uh, there were these special stores with imported goods, where one could go and you know hope to be one of the lucky few to get their hands on a computer. And you would wait in long lines, you know, overnight. This is uh, this is a photo of a queue for a color TV. So it's not for a computer, but it would be very yeah. similar. So small quantities of computers were imported into the country, uh, but they could in uh, no way you know, satiate the demand for them. Uh, another option would be to travel to the West and buy computers there, um, individually kind of import them. Uh, once again, this was, uh, this was an option, but it was very limited because not everybody had a permit to actually travel to the West. But it was the most frequent way of obtaining computers. If you could not travel to the West yourself, you might have had an aunt, uh, aunt or an uncle, or you know, or a friend from work who actually could, and they could potentially bring you a computer. But still, it was. I mean, you had to invest a substantial amount of money and time to be able to do that. 
still the number of computers among the people was rising. Uh, the most popular one uh, was this one. That's the Sinclair ZX Spectrum. It was a British machine uh, based on the Z80. And uh, there were several reasons why this British computer became the most popular. One of them is that it was the cheapest one that was available on the Western European markets. And the other reason is that it was um, tiny. It was very small. Uh, I don't, well, it was like, yeah, probably like half of this thing. And that meant that it could be easily smuggled into the country. So there are these stories of people kind of bringing it uh, back into Czechoslovakia in, in these chocolate boxes. So they would, they would buy a box of chocolates, eat all the chocolates, and hide the computer in, in the box of chocolates. So they wouldn't have to pay the customs fees, which were extremely high. And they were calculated based on the, the amount of memory uh, that the computer had. Um, given that uh, this British computer was the most popular in the country, um, the British game industry and British games had a big influence in the country. Games like Manic Miner were seminal. I mean, they are not very well known in the US, but these were, like, this game was a huge hit in most of Europe. Yeah? The keyboard. Uh, were keyboard caps, I can't remember, because mm -hmm. uh, I was, were keyboard caps made in, uh, in Czechoslovakia? Keyboard caps? Yeah, so that, I mean, it would come with a, with a QWERTY, right? Yeah. And so the people, people didn't use the QWERTY, I mean, didn't they use? They used, uh, I mean, they mostly, most of the time they used Western machines with a QWERTY keyboard without diacritics. Okay. And yeah. these, interestingly enough, also had QWERTY keyboards. Oh, this is actually QWERTS. Okay, so this has the check layout. But in, in 1990, I brought all over SE30s, and but we made caps for them because uh -huh. everyone's very happy to get them. I can imagine. Well, yeah. my brother told me you could launch a cruise missile with them. <laughs> but that was 1990, so I think it, it might have been easier to to get into the country. Yeah. Yeah, most of the software was circulating on cassette tapes yeah. um, at that time. Uh, this is a, a sort of Czechoslovak manufactured cassette tape. Okay, so um, you know, in 1985, there was already around 30,000 people who had uh, the Sinclair ZX Spectrum or another computer. Uh, so given that it was a 15 million strong country, it, there was a substantial community and it grew to about 100,000 in 1989. So it was, um, I mean, the, there was about, um, the prevalence of microcomputers was about 10 times uh, smaller than like in, in the UK, for example, but it was still a substantial community. <coughs> and um, although the government didn't really uh, sort of promote home computers, they kind of noticed. and. Um, Sort of paradoxically enough, they started uh, um, promoting and supporting um, hobby computing uh, because it was one of the few ways in which they could, you know, educate programmers that then would sort of work in the, you know, in the auto uh, industry or in the military, and um, you know, these skills that they learn while working with computers would then become useful. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it right now. So there were two major um, organizations that backed these computer clubs. Uh, and one important thing to remember is that back then 
people couldn't really gather without backing of like an official organization. Otherwise, it would be just illegal gathering, and you couldn't do that. Uh, so you you wouldn't you weren't able to kind of uh, start an association or something. It has it had to have official backing, and these two organizations um, usually gave their backing to these clubs. This is the this is SSM, the Socialist uh, Youth Union, and Svazarm, which was a paramilitary organization. Uh, Translated into English, the name means uh, Organization for Cooperation with the Army. And uh, it, was, it was a paramilitary organization that um, kind of was in, served as its umbrella for all kinds of hobby clubs, um, focusing on hobbies that potentially have some application in the military, like ham radio or, um, or microcomputing and um, electronics and so on. And uh, Svazarm, um, although the government at large wasn't really interested, Svazarm was. And, uh, and that was extremely important for the development of uh, computer hobby culture in the country. So in 1982, uh, they pledged uh, to track hobby activities in the field of computing, including construction of machines and equipment using digital integrated circuits and so on. Uh, as well as building of various programs for calculations and games, so they explicitly mention games here, on programmable, programmable calculators and personal microcomputers. Um, it will aim to streamline this activity to increase the number of technical personnel who have good command of computers and will use it for the benefit of our national economy and for the defense of our homeland. So that is sort of the overt goal, but in fact, uh, most of these clubs rarely did anything that benefited uh, the defense of the homeland. They were, just, they were just gathering there and you know, playing around and experimenting. Um, there was very little oversight uh, from, you know, from, the, from, the, from the military and from the paramilitary. This is a snapshot of one of those, from one of those clubs. Um, you know, they were, people who attended those clubs were mostly uh, boys and young men, uh, tutored by you know, uh, older men usually. There were some women as well. Uh, the reason f why there was so few women, I mean, there are very, very similar reasons to why, uh, why it happened in the West. Um, because you know, technical hobbies were, you know, in the, in, the, in the discourse at that time were considered a, a male, male activity. And also uh, women, especially under social, you know, in state socialist countries, women were expected to go to work and to take care of the family at the same time, which left them very little uh, time for leisure activities. Um, to understand what was happening in these clubs, um, um, I'm drawing from Alexei Yurchak, who is an anthropologist of uh, late socialism. And he uses this really useful term, vnye, uh, V-N-Y-E which means, in Russian, it means both inside and outside. And, um, and in a way, that's what happened with those clubs. Those clubs were sort of officially a part of the paramilitary, but in fact, they were places where a lot of subversive stuff was happening, a lot of kind of unconventional um, uh, uses of technology. And uh, they were, in fact, very kind of open-minded and free-thinking collectives, uh, all kind of shielded by this rhetoric of doing this for the defense of our homeland and for our national economy. Um, as one of the, my interviewees, a club organizer, puts it, 
we didn't mind being under Svazarm and didn't care if it meant something for the army and the defense of the homeland and so on. We just unscrupulously took advantage of the regime to get to the things that we were attracted to and that we liked and that we would otherwise, otherwise never get. So the, the relationship was very pragmatic. And, um, and these clubs offered a space where people could really kind of express themselves and, 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 and fulfill their ambitions. As another interviewee puts it, back then you were born and there was a path laid out for you. You had to be a spark, which was like a youth organization for like little, uh, small kids, a pioneer for uh, <laughs> older kids, a socialist youth, uh, a communist, then take part in the socialist economy so that you have a secure life and eventually retire. You could deviate from this in a limited number of ways. This, hobby computing, was a shortcut, something that came out of the blue, something that nobody anticipated. Here you could fulfill your ambitions and find your talent. Um, and um, the, the fact that this was like a new thing, a new medium and new technology was very important um, because um, the censors and you know, the authorities didn't really realize that computer games um, are a medium that's capable of expressing political beliefs, for instance. So games were probably the least censored medium in the country at that point because nobody really uh, thought it was a medium or at least the authorities didn't think it was a medium. I mean, the young people uh, who were making games did realize that, and they were uh, some of the first to realize that. Yeah, but they were spaces uh, where you, one could fulfill uh, their ambitions, but not for everyone. As I said, especially women uh, were excluded. There were some, but, uh, but few. So what is happening in these clubs? Um, three main activities. Um, Creating software, um, creating hardware, and, and publishing. I think the newsletters were sort of an important part of, of, the, of the hobby club life. And I'll start with hardware tinkering and show you a few photos of the, of the material artifacts that I've gathered. So a lot of it uh, came out of necessity uh, because once you imported your computer from the West, you didn't have access to sort of authorized service, right? You couldn't, like if your, if your keyboard broke down, you couldn't just like send it to the UK and so that they would service it for you and then, uh, then send it back. It just wasn't possible. So people had to fix stuff themselves. Um, this was especially uh, needed when, you know, such as in this case, um, actually, two kids were sharing this one computer, and like they were basically using it you know, all day long. And the keyboard wore out very fast. And what they did, they uh, they got some mechanical switches from like a different machine or a computer. And you can see that they're kind of attached to this kind of uh, plywood board and connected with this uh, with this with this wire, which is one of the standard wires you could buy in an electronics store. It's very kind of rough around the edges. I really like this. Uh, this keyboard. This is a homemade joystick. It was not easy to create a computer from scratch, to build a computer from scratch, but it was relatively easy to you know, fix a keyboard or to build a joystick. And uh, joysticks, joysticks weren't really manufactured in, in the country, um, so people were making their own. Um, this one is uh, from the Station of Young Technicians, one of the, uh, one of the clubs in Prague. Um, yeah, they had they had this uh, this big closet with you know all these amazing all this, all this amazing stuff. 
which I borrowed to take pictures of. Um, so this was um, built basically from kind of household objects and scrap. Um, the, the the controller itself is uh, um, is 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 built out of a regular furniture knob that you kind of have on drawers. So that's that part. Um, you can see that for buttons they cannibalized a calculator, and this is just a sort of like a standard switch that you could buy in a store. And once again, you can see this kind of rainbow wire that was, you know, you can find it in almost all uh, homemade artifacts from the era. And this is a mouse. Um, so people were building mice, computer mice, around ping pong balls. So, I mean, mice no longer have those balls, but if you look at like a mouse from the 1990s, you, you, will, you will find a ball there. And uh, these, you know, these kids were using uh, ping pong balls. You can even kind of read the, the logo of the company that made a ping pong ball. It's made in China. Yeah, this was sold, uh, this was distributed as a, as a kit that you could sort of pick up at one of the clubs and then you would assemble it at home. Um, software was you know, very important. I'll be talking about games for most of the time. Um, here you can see a, um, sort of a scene from the Station of the Technicians in Prague, the same that you know, all these joysticks come from. And uh, this is from a newspaper. And it shows the grammar school student František Fuka on the left, showing his friends at the Station of Young Technicians his own new creation, a computer game. And you can see that the, the rest of the uh, guys are kind of in awe, and they're kind of really kind of excited what František is going to show them. So making a game was uh, an important way of showing uh, one's skills, and also to communicate with you know, other, other members of the community. As I mentioned before, games mostly circulated on cassette tapes. And here you can see an inlay card of one of those cassette tapes, um, also from the archive of one of my informants. These were regular cassette tapes on which, you know, about, you can see, you know, like maybe 15, 12 games would fit. And um, they were often kind of very incongruous combinations of utility software, um, Western games, such Ocean Con Conqueror, <laughs> um, domestic games, and uh, yeah, and utility software. So here we can see some Western games, utilities. Uh, Dictator was a British game translated into Czech. So you can see that it actually has the sort of the Czech spelling of the word. And Jones is actually a Czech game. It's, uh, it's a text adventure game about Indiana Jones, uh, you know, of the Indiana Jones movies. Um, yeah, I've already mentioned this. Um, so people were not only playing Western games, um, but they were also writing their own. Sometimes they were sort of trying to copy Western genres, like um, you know, these shoot 'em up kind of uh, space invader style games. So there was a game called Star Fox, unrelated to the one by Nintendo, uh, made you know in Prague. Um, sometimes you know people were trying to uh, create games that would pass for Western games, but didn't really succeed. Uh, you can see that uh, especially like when you read uh, you know the, the the titles and the subtitles and the English. Uh, so they were trying to like sound very 
very British or very American, but uh, you can see that, for instance, in this, uh, this game, Exotron Speed is Stony Wizards Attack. It doesn't really sound legit, but it's a, it's a very cool it's a very cool title. It's not a great game. Um, this is one of the um, this is one of the screens in one of the shooter games. Before you start, it says, "Good luck, fight bravely but carefully. They are ready. Uh, they are angry." So uh, that's uh, sort of to amp you up before you play. And um, people are also using elements of Western popular culture, um, such as the the character of Indiana Jones. Who became one of the kind of most popular characters uh, among Czech game designers? This is by František Fuka, the, the boy that we saw on the picture. And we will see another game in, about Indiana Jones soon. Um, given that it was quite difficult to create graphics on 8-bit computers uh, that people were using at the time, many of those games uh, were actually text adventures. Have you played text adventures? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, basically they tell a story in a text form. There's uh, like a description of a place or a scene, and then you can enter, you can type in a command and kind of tell the character what you want to do. Indiana Jones was one of those text adventures. And actually, most of the games that I will be talking f about from now on are text adventures. But while uh, they were drawing from Western inspirations, they also made games that were um, the building, building on and uh, that were inspired by, by uh, local culture, um, such as this one, which is called Pishquirks, and it's it's uh, it's an adaptation of a of a sort of Central European variant of tic tac toe. So in this variant of tic tac toe, which is played by you know kids at school, um, you have to have five uh, knots or crosses in a row or a diagonal or or a vertical, uh, and it it's actually played. I'm sort of like an open world plane. It just depends on you know how big of a graph paper you have, and you can you can go anywhere basically. Um, and uh, you know there was no um, because this game is not played in the West. Like, there was no uh, Western version of this you know non-digital game, so people made their own. There were games uh, taking place in Czech medieval castles, such as this one, taking the castle. Games built on uh, Czech comics. Uh, such as this one, Rychle Sheeper of Fast Arrows, about a group of Boy Scouts. The comics was actually a band uh, at that time, so it was, it was not coming out. But it still was popular among the people, although it was not being published. And people were also writing games about themselves and about you know, their town or their school. Uh, Fuxov was, uh, was one of the first, and I will be talking about these uh, for a little bit. I call them hyperlocal games, based on the concept of uh, hyperlocal media that was popular in media studies some 10 years ago. I define them as games um, created by people from a particular place about that place and about the people who inhabit it, written mainly but not exclusively for the local community. Um, and I will uh, show you the first example. So this is a game called Demon in Danger, written by uh, Martin Mali, a uh, young programmer based in, in a small Czech uh, village. Um, he actually used this piece of graphic from a Western game, but then built his own story around it. The game takes place in his apartment, 
and this is the opening description. Uh, this is just a translation of the caption. Then there flees the crime scene. Then there is a British comics hero, and there were of, um, British games based on that character. On November 13th, 1988, a strange person appeared in the village of Chlebe, where the author lived. He was wearing an army uniform and an army hat. Those who know games for the ZX Spectrum computer would recognize him as then there, a comics hero. He was an agent of the studio Fuchsoft, constructed by František Fuka. So you can see the back and forth between you know, different members of the community. Uh, this uh, really kind of uh, uh, un unbounded intertextuality. Um, his mission is to plant a bomb into the apartment of the competing studio Demon, that is, into the apartment of Martin Mari, who is the author of this game. Um, it is very meta. <laughs> and in this game, uh, you, you play um, a, a friend of the author, and you're entering his apartment or his family's apartment, and you have to defuse the bomb. And uh, you basically, the, the game takes place in this, in this exact building in the village of Chlebe, the building that still exists. Um, it looks like this. Um, and when you play the game, it, it gives you kind of this voyeuristic kind of experience of actually being in an apartment, um, you know, like, like in the 80s in, 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 in this, uh, in, you know, it, you, can, you can kind of, you can read descriptions um, um, of the technology that they're using. You can look at different objects and see if they have like price tags, so you can even kind of see how you know, different things were expensive at that time and so on. And this is the map of the game. So I finished the game and you can kind of walk through the apartments as you play. It's text-based, so it's all based on textual descriptions. And you can even get into Demon's Office, which is where <coughs> the author was making his game. And it sounds kind of much more, uh, much fancier and it's called Demon's Office, uh, but it actually looked something like that. It was kind of a very kind of humble, uh, humble office where he was making his games. But this practice of making games about yourself became quite common, actually, at the time. Um, in a way, it's, um, it's empowered you know, the author. Uh, it's made the author or you know, the, the places where they lived uh, a part of, of these you know, um, adventures and these, uh, these fascinating um, stories. Um, I'll, I'll show you one example of a game where this sort of playful approach to design becomes a bit more political. It's a game from 1992, so it's, it was actually made after the fall of the Iron Curtain, but sort of the aesthetic and the approach is very similar. Plus, I have a really amazing video of the, of the author explaining what the game is about. It takes place in a high school, so you can see the building here. And you can also see that the author, Jan Lonsky, identified with the punk rock subculture. So he was a part of the kind of hobby computing subculture, but at the same time, he was a part, a part of the punk rock subculture. You can see like Anar Anarchy and Puck Snub Dead and so on. And uh, he will explain what the game is about. So my name is ale někdy během vymýšlení hry identifikoval, takže jde vlastně o mě. Respectman byl Maja Korbel. Hlavní hodina Stormen se dostane do školní budovy, zapadnou za ní dveře, zamkrou se, 
té školní budově musí získat materiály z výslechů, stojné a respektné, a tyto materiály v příslušní datové podobě poslat tajní organizaci, která zajistí chycení a potrestání příslušných vědníků. A posledním úkolem je uniknout z budovy školy. Pixla zakomplexovaná byla výchovná poradkyně, skutečný jméno Ivanka Nosková. Přestože zní takhle rostomilé, tak ta paní měla na svědomí mě takhle s tím pájou, jak se pokusila nás, jak řekněme, dostat do spáru psychiatra, vždycky si z ročníku někoho vyhlídla. Přesvědčila ho nebo ho uvrtala do nějakého problému a pak ho posílala do poradny do Havlovic. Okay, so you can see that um, in this game, I mean, although I'm assuming uh, it's uh, it really has an agenda, like they're using the game to push back against the oppression that they were experiencing at school. Um, it was mostly made for you know the people who went to school who knew all the names but at the same time it's a really interesting historical you know, document showing us the range of possibilities of you know, using computer games as a medium uh, they as uh, the author puts it we weren't weak we had our own powers and abilities one of them was the ability to express ourselves in a way that cannot be intercepted by them meaning those in those in power um, so the, the main character Uh, to, uh, the, the author returns as this uh, this comics character Stodman into the in, into this place where you know this oppression happened and sort of can kind of right these wrongs. And um, um, there were games, uh, you know, before uh, made before the Velvet Revolution that uh, sort of uh, did a similar thing, but on a sort of. A, um, related to, uh, to sort of politics at large. And I'll give you a few examples now. I think I'll, I'll skip this one for today. And I'll, we'll look at reconstruction. Um, I was showing this, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, this is the one more, more important bit of context. Um, so 
Perestroika, our uh, reconstruction, was a series of reforms undertaken in the Soviet Union in the 19, I mean, the late 1980s. Um, they didn't really, um, they, weren't, they weren't really applied in Czechoslovakia. It was one of the most conservative communist regimes. Um, but what, it, what did happen was that people heard the news about these reforms in the Soviet Union and they became much more courageous. Uh, they started going to demonstrations and they started demanding change. And uh, people were not as uh, scared anymore. Uh, there were more signs that you know, um, it, it's possible to push back uh, and it is sort of desirable to, to participate and to, to get engaged. Um, and uh, people did it in many ways. You know, there were folk singers singing you know, songs on these topics. There were you know, underground journalists publishing some is that about these things. And there were also people making games. And uh, reconstruction, or, the, or actually perestroika, is, is one, of, one of those games. Um, so there are, like, already on the title screen, there are a few things that are noteworthy. One of them is that uh, the game was uh, released under a pseudonym, which makes sense, uh, because still, I mean, people, um, you, could, you could get into trouble for making an anti-regime game. Um, it was actually made by the same guy who made Star Fox, which was um, sort of a very kind of graphically advanced shooter featuring fast animation and, you know, like really good programming. But this game was written in basic, like a very simple programming language. And he said, I was so ingenious that in order for the secret police not to catch me, I made the game awfully primitive so that it didn't contain his, his like trademark tricks and routines and so on. So he sacrificed sort of his, you know, showing of his skills in order to express his opinions. It is jokingly dedicated to the 20th anniversary of the liberation of Czechoslovakia of the, by the Allied forces of Warsaw Pact, which, which happened in 1968. Um, the Soviet forces um, invaded the country and were occupying it uh, since, since then. Um, and there's one more important thing. You can see that if you press the, uh, the letter S, it will create a copy of the game, uh, you, if you could have put in a cassette. So this is clearly designed to spread. Um, the game itself um, is full of interesting contrasts. So um, as you're typing in the commands, you can see some of these you know, very kind of well-known uh, communist slogans. Um, but in fact, uh, the story is, like, goes against these slogans. The, the, the goal of the game is to destroy a statue of Lenin uh, in a, like an anonymous kind of nondescript uh, Czech town. And uh, to do that, you have to do all kinds of things, basically kind of defacing uh, the, uh, the, the symbols of the communist regime. Uh, one of one, uh, at one point you're in this dark tunnel, and in order to you know, get further, you have to you have to you know create some 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 sort of light. And to do that, uh, you set a copy of um, Capital by Karl Marx on fire, and uh, and uh, you know Capital by Karl Marx was uh, I mean was a book whose misinterpretation was kind of at the at the at the foundation of the the, the you know the communist ideology at the time. Um, so it was very much you know, despised by many people. Um, there are also 
Other interesting in-jokes, so in order to light the capital on fire, which then emits the light of progress, as the game expresses it, uh, you have to use a lighter, and the lighter is of uh, a Soviet manufacturer. And actually, when I was playing this game for the first time, that's where I got stuck. Before I hacked into the game and looked at the code and found out that the lighter only works with a 30% probability. Probably like a commentary on the quality of, uh, of Soviet products. Um, it is, I mean, it is, uh, there's a lot of irony in the game and it is funny, but um, it once again has like a very clear message. If you get to the end, uh, you get this screen. It says, congratulations once more. We will all meet on August 21st on Old Town Square or anywhere else. And August 21st was the 20th anniversary of, of the occupation. So the game explicitly invites people to, uh, to a demonstration against the regime. Um, it was a naive protest of sorts, uh, says the author, um, who was, um, he wasn't that politically active in sort of other avenues of life. But um, he felt that uh, you know the regime was like very oppressive. He wanted to uh, you know be a programmer, have a you know have a career. He wanted to travel, but all of this uh, you know um, he couldn't do. Um, events sort of started to escalate in 1989. In January, um, um, you know, a group of people came to Wenceslas Square, which is the, the sort of the main square in the city, like the largest sort of public, uh, public space, uh, to commemorate the 20th anniversary <coughs> of the self-immolation self of Jan Palach, who set himself on fire in 1969 to protest uh, the, the, you know, the developments after the Soviet occupation and the indifference of Czechos Czechoslovak people to those developments. Um, the, the protests, the demonstrations were peaceful, but they were brutally suppressed by the police. And this was one of the moments where uh, the regime started losing its, uh, uh, you know, its uh, legitimacy, uh, because there was, it, was, it was one of the first examples of, sort of open violence against you know, uh, citizens. And uh, there was a game about it uh, called The Adventures of Indiana Jones on Wenceslas Square in Prague on January 16, 1989, um, released anonymously. It, it's a game that's very violent. Um, I mean, there's a lot of exaggerated violence, but at the same time, um, the game is also quite um, sort of realistic and, and kind of faithful in, in portraying sort of the geographical space of Wenceslas Square. Um, just one of the examples of violence. Um, Indiana Jones dies a lot in that game. It's a very difficult game, um, sort of uh, you know, emphasizing uh, the, the violence by the police. This is one of the death scenes in the game. You are standing at an unobstructed entrance into the subway. As soon as you showed up, an officer came to you and searched you. Having found nothing, he called on his comrades, and they beat you senseless. As they were running away to deal with some woman with a baby carriage, one of them lost a machete. You crawled for it and committed harakiri. Indiana Jones is dead. And this is one of the kind of, kind of uh, most elaborate death scenes, but there are many other death scenes in the game. You can fail in many ways. But you can also inflict violence in many ways. You are standing in front of the grocery house uh, department store. The entrance into the subway is fortunately clear. An annoying man, probably a communist, 
is looking out of a balcony and happily watching the good work of the members of the public security, which was the official uh, name of the uh, uh, police force. You can go down to the right or inside. You see a cop, and I have picked up an axe before. Use axe, I'm typing. You drove your axe so deep inside his skull that it cannot be pulled out. You see a dead cop. And um, you proceed through the game in, in this manner. It's, it's once again quite a difficult game, yeah? Yeah, I, I first was in Prague in 1972 and, and uh, uh, was working on a book and interviewing some people who uh, had been involved in 1968. So I made the mistake of uh, talking to a cab driver. And, uh, so anyway, I ended up getting uh, deported for 20 years. Uh, but my experience then and then later was that violence uh, uh, in Prague was just not, it was just not something you saw, you heard. Mm -hmm. You didn't hear violent language on the part of young people. And, uh, so, and, and it, just, it just wasn't displayed. So to see this in games mm -hmm. uh, is really, to hear this now, yep. Uh, is, is really striking to me. Yep. Uh, the other thing is that in the, uh, in the, se the scenes that you showed, um, in the, the big event in, in late 1989, uh, when there was a demonstration, and young people were trapped by the police at one point. Uh, yeah, I will get to that in a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All I can say is that everyone I met then when I was there in 1990 uh, doing work for Apple, everyone I met was horrified, older people, that violence had been perpetrated upon, as they said, our children. Yep. So that was, as you say about legitimacy, mm -hmm. that was really, uh, that was a breaking point. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I'm, in a way, I think that sort of this exaggerated violence that we can see in the game is, is once again this sort of, this sort of pushback. So, yes. I mean, there was violence and now, you know, you can relive these traumatic events as Indiana Jones, as this sort of iconic Western hero who returns to this place, and you know you can you can re relive this this moment from from as a position of you know empowerment. So now you can actually attack the police yourself. Yeah. And I'm, we don't really know who created this game, but kind of my hunch is that that person actually might have taken part in those demonstrations because like one thing is that sort of um, the description of where the water cannons are and where the police are stationed is actually uh, very kind of, uh, you know, um, correct historically. Since you've mentioned Indiana Jones a few times, I think that these were movies that were officially imported and were very popular. That is, uh, yeah, they were officially imported, but with long delays. So about, it was usually about like three or four year, years of delay b before they were officially shown in the country. Indiana Jones, yeah. Yeah, it, it, the, the movies were shown in the country. Yeah, so, um, uh, so yeah, so um, that was Indiana Jones in Vincenzo Square. Um, and um, demonstrations continued. And in November, uh, on November 17th, 1989, uh, the events of what is now called as Velvet Revolution uh, started. And uh, once again, it was a demonstration mostly by, by students, young people, and it was, again, brutally suppressed by the police. Um, one of the most famous slogans of the protesters at that demonstration was this one, which means we do not want violence. Uh, but it did end in violence. Um, and eventually led to the demise of the communist regime. Um, so. 
Even this demonstration had games made about it, or at least one game. Um, it's called uh, November 17th, 1989. You can see that they're once again using the, uh, they're using the slogan as well. If we are to uh, believe the information on the loading screen, it was made, it's not really uh, clear here, but it was, it was released probably or made on the 19th of November, so very fast after the events, two days after the events. Um, this game has a quite interesting story. It's not, I mean, the violence is featured only briefly. The point of the game is actually to uh, find recording, video rec recording equipment and uh, you know, capture recordings of what is happening um, in the streets and then send those recordings to, um, to journalists in the West so that, that the, wor the whole world can see what's happening. Um, at that point, uh, getting access to information was, was quite difficult because, you know, the state-owned, uh, the state-run TV and state-run newspapers didn't really cover these events. So this, uh, this theme of you know, getting access to information was very important. It, um, there are you know, several, several kind of games that have this, this similar topic or kind of feature journalists or feature getting information out. Um, I've uh, mentioned a few times how people were kind of repurposing Western games, um, you know, taking graphics or taking inspiration or taking bits of code. In this particular case, um, I was, for a long time, I was kind of, it felt the, the, the whole um, screen kind of felt a little strange to me because these, this, the, the face and the hand of the policeman are kind of higher quality than the rest of the image. And, uh, and once I came across this loading screen, uh, which is an Australian-made uh, fighting game, The Way of the Exploding Fist. And uh, it, quite likely what happened is that the person who was making the game uh, just kind of redrew uh, around that image of, of an angry, angry person and made them into this, uh, this riot police uh, member. Okay, I'm getting towards the end. Um, so I have identified um, in this talk three different kinds of engagement or activism. Um, one of them is repurposing and infiltrating the state infrastructure of you know, the paramilitary and youth clubs to create alternative vignette spaces and networks and fulfill personal and collective ambitions. Um, so it was, a, it was a sort of like a very tactical and very smart way of uh, you know, um, doing it. Um, at the same time, it wouldn't have been possible without the kind of unknowing support of the government actually, because they were you know, giving funding to these computer clubs and to these paramilitary organizations. Uh, but they had no idea that you know, it would be used in such a subversive ways. One thing I didn't mention is that um, most, of, most of the authors of all of the games that I've shown were members of those clubs. Uh, that was pretty much the only place where you could get software, the only place where you could get the know-how, how to program, and so on. Um, second, they were repurposing the medium. Um, in the West, it was mostly used as an entertainment medium, but they were using it to empower themselves and talk about their own experiences in, in those hyper-local games. <coughs> and third, um, they expressed their discontent with the political situation through activist games. And uh, they were some of the earliest political or activist games in, in any, if, if any kind of term or concept that we apply to them. They were among the first. Um, and you know, I think that to some extent, uh, this is, um, they were first documented. So, so 
I mean, if there was more research on you know computer games in that era in different countries, we might have you know we we might find you know more examples. But so far, these are these are some of the earliest examples of using computer games for political activism. And uh, that's it from me. Thank you. I'm just uh, before before I uh, end. Um, a lot of the images that I was showing are available on the website arvgurten.svelch, uh, uh, my, my last name, uh, .com. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm happy, happy to take questions or comments. Yep. Um, it is unlikely, um, especially sex adventures were written in um, in the local, I mean, in Czech or in Slovak, so they would. I mean, it would be not impossible, but kind of difficult for people from other countries to play. Um, and at the same time, even within the Soviet bloc, um, it was difficult to travel. You get to have you had to get special permits, and there was. I mean, the the communication between even computer clubs. Be from different countries was limited. I want to ask a, sure. a methodological yeah. question, and that yeah. is, um, what was your process of finding people? Um, you know, you weren't just interviewing them, but you were interviewing them on camera, which some people are okay. more or less comfortable mm -hmm. with. So, um, how did that all come about? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, so there is still an active community of people who were you know, active in the 1980s or still kind of attending these uh, get-togethers. Um, so that is a good place to start. Um, the, the video footage was not, actually not my footage. Mm. It's, from a, uh, it's from a documentary that's uh, sort of being produced. Um, it was a student project, and I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that it will be finished at some point, but it's, it's very promising. So I actually, I interviewed that person before that, and uh, the filmmakers kind of visited him later. Um, and people, most of the time, people were very generous and kind of open, um, because they, most of them think that, you know, they're getting some, I mean, that their, their efforts were justified and they're getting some recognition after all these years. So, so, so most of them are, are very open. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's difficult to, I mean, it's, it's important not to rely just on the interviews because, you know, memory doesn't, I mean, it's, it's not, <laughs> it doesn't work in, in ways that people think. And, you know, like there are, uh, sometimes it's, 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 it's important to kind of collate the information that you have with, you know, some archival, um, some archival sources. Okay. So in a way, your, your filter is, <coughs> is working with social groups, collectives, because mm -hmm. they save the stuff. Because yeah, they yeah. And in, in an emergent phase, I guess, that, that was necessary just to develop the games, it, it sounds like, is your story. Yeah. Any sense of whether standalone games were, are there communities you didn't get to cover, or are you aware of other kinds of game activities that are not part of your book, but were out there in the, in the, in the bigger um, Czechoslovakian uh, reality? Yeah. Well, people were playing a lot of Western games for entertainment. So most of, I mean, if you were uh, a user of an APIC computer in the 1980s, you would spend a lot of time playing Western games, then probably programming some of your stuff, and, and then playing some Czech games. So they were, the domestic games were in the minority. There weren't as many of them um, as the Western ones. Um, and uh, 
Um, the activist games were, I mean, there was a handful of them, but it was not like the majority. Uh, there, were, there was about you know, 300 games that have been preserved from that era, made in Czechoslovakia. And, uh, you know, and the activist games is, is, is about a dozen. So I, I, th I think that it's more than um, like a kind of major strand in that production. I think it's like a culmination of like many different, uh, many different uh, kind of um, kinds of activities. Hyperlocal games and just creating any kind of game and uh, you know, other kinds of political activism. And I think it all kind of culminated in, in these examples that I was showing. Just to follow, yeah. um, Susan Douglas in her work on uh, amateur radio in the 20s talks about radio is very attractive to young people and mm -hmm. it's kind of positioned as learning the technology of the future. Uh, and then other things started to happen. But the, but the gateway was some sense of empowering yourself for a soon-to-be important technology. Mm -hmm. um, Eduardo Morisco, who was a student here, did work on Peruvian gaming system, gaming scene, where because similar kind of story with, with cost and import controls, there was a very big hacking scene. And again, he, he sort of reports that the impetus there too was a sense of like, well, people wanted to play, they knew about games, they couldn't really easily buy them. So, but they also saw this as a, as, a, as a step ahead, a way to sort of learn skills mm -hmm. that they might be able to use. Yeah. How much of that's, I mean, this, what I'm hearing from you is there's maybe some of that, but there's also a lot of, this is a site of resistance, or I'm reading, hearing it through yeah. my lens of like, who gamers are, yeah. who I think gamers are. Yeah. What's your sense of that? Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the support for the computer clubs was based on the idea that it will be useful in the future. Uh, very often, uh, the, the rationale or sort of the, um, when, when kids were trying to convince their parents to get them a computer, um, of course, I mean, the, the, usually the reason was that, you know, it will help me learn math and programming and the future belongs to the computers, so you know you're, you will be preparing your child for like a, the, the computerized future. So it featured it featured very often. Uh, it, it was very important, and uh, the use of computers for uh, self-expression was well, I wouldn't say accidental, but I think it was unexpected to some extent. Because um, people were many of the people that I interviewed were. For them, I think the program, programming and computers as such was not the primary interest. And it's, uh, you can see that on, the, on their kind of future career paths. So some of, some of these people are now, I mean, not programmers, but they're journalists. Um, so the you know, computer games became this outlet for, for self-expression that was available to you know, these young people in these clubs, and it was not censored. Um, so I think that it, it came about somewhat unexpectedly. At the same time, I mean, there was something very kind of cool about owning a computer and working on a computer. It was like in itself, um, it was engagement with Western technology and Western culture. Um, so it was by many considered something that is maybe not, not exactly like a politi political act, but it was slightly unconventional or slightly subversive to use these Western machines in a socialist country. Yeah? Was the ZX Spectrum the primary computer that these people were using? Yeah. Yeah, there were other platforms being used, like the 8-bit Atari and uh, some Japanese machines, like the Sharp MZ800, but uh, the Spectrum was the primary. And then there were also 
Czechoslovak clones of the Spectrum that started being manufactured in the late 80s. Oh, hey. <laughs> um, thanks for your work. I'm just wondering, as you've been presenting this, if you're starting to see um, kind of parallel uh, movements and, and just the regional Eastern Bloc um, um, kind of co-occurrence of these computer clubs becoming, these gaming clubs becoming sites where people are playing with how to how to challenge their, their own regime, so called Bulgaria, which is hmm. taking different places that may or may not have uh, an approach to using these technologies in that way? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I would love to know more, but uh, the thing is that we don't really have the research. Um, there is some research on Poland which suggests that it didn't happen very often, um, um, that most games that were created in Poland were made for entertainment primarily. Um, but, I mean, the research is kind of very scant and we, yeah, we don't really know. So, I mean, I would, I would love to know. Especially Bulgaria, which had a lot of government support uh, for programming and for computer clubs. Yeah. Can I follow up to that? Were there, were there anything, was there anything like the kind of networking of different clubs across the Eastern Bloc that is common in other kinds of club outings or activities? Like, did you, was there any sort of cross-pollination um, so the clubs were definitely con interconnected within the country. Uh, they were exchanging members, they were communicating via mail. Uh, people from one city were making games about people from the other city um, and they were collaborating, so that uh, was definitely happening. Um, among clubs from different countries, not so much because it was just, like back then, like, I think that the scope of people's how people identify themselves was kind of very national. Um, people thought of themselves as Czechoslovak programmers, but you know, although they were sometimes reading Polish magazines, I don't think there was like a strong incentive or strong interest in actually going to Poland and talking to people there, or it, it was very difficult. So it wasn't, it, yeah, there wasn't that much sort of connection with uh, with other countries, other Eastern European countries. I visited an exhibit in, in Budapest that was really revealing, and I, I guess the numbers here won't support it in this case, but it was on the, um, the youth exchange programs. So they would send Hungarian kids mm -hmm. to Germany to work for a summer. And the exhibit was basically letters complaining about cultural transfer. Hungarians were coming in wearing blue jeans, they had long hair, they were playing like rock and roll music in, German, in East Germany. and, and you know, playing with the girls there, and all of this, all these are letters of complaint by the by the East German authorities, and it was pointedly about the kind of cultural transfer that was occurring, which they didn't like, Hungarian youth culture corrupting German youth culture, and I just, you know, you, if there's a hundred thousand machines, there's yeah. not going to the chances of those people going over and working. But I just wonder, is there any of that kind of evidence, or, or? Um, not that I know of, but the Hungary was one of the most liberal Eastern European countries at the time. Um, they were even producing games for Western markets, which uh, didn't happen, didn't really happen elsewhere, with the exception of Tetris. But Hungary was, yeah, it was, it was much more liberal, so I can, I can see that they were wearing <laughs> jeans. <laughs> I think, anyway, the fact that, you know, these communities emerged, it was that, and they, they were allowed to exist, was that they kind of, on the surface, they looked kind of conformist, right? Like the, these, uh, this kind of subversion was not something that you would see at first sight. Like these were, most of these kids were, I mean, 
didn't look like you know punk rockers. I mean that was in the 90s, but like most most of the people in the 1980s, they just looked like regular kind of nice kids that are trying to learn how to work with computers. But, but there was a lot of sanctioned um, resistance in the sense of the film industry, the animation mm -hmm. industry. There's a fair amount of. Uh, I mean, the Czech film yeah. scene was was at least for a time pretty vibrant in mm -hmm. oppositional terms. Yeah. Um, Schweik is. Schwankmeier. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. Yeah. Mostly watched Oh yeah, yeah. well, uh, yeah. Well, a part of part of why um, um, sort of the the government and the cultural policy allowed for that was to uh, was to create these films that were often kind of intended as exports. So it was like sh to show the Western world that you know we can create you know great art. Um, and there were some selected artists who kind of had more freedom than others, who were kind of then showcased in you know Western film festivals and so on. And in a way, uh, these computer clubs were in a similar position because they would sometimes sort of go to you know other Eastern Bloc countries or other uh, sometimes even to Western countries to kind of take part in some competitions. Um, so I, I guess they were also uh, you know a way in which the regime could kind of exhibit that you know there are interesting things going on and we are progressive and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two things in the in, in both the uh, Czechoslovakia and, and, and Hungary, uh, the, the films in some ways, some of the work was very advanced. And of course, in the Czech, Czechoslovakia in Prague, you had Barandov. Uh -huh. So you had a long tradition of making absolutely outstanding films. And you had a, an, ar an artistic community that was, I think, fairly cooperative and supportive. Uh, and, and films like Closely Watched Trains, uh, technically, is, is, is really uh, terrific. But the other thing, just not just how it's shot, but how it's it's acted, but it's against fascism, it, and it and it has that unique Czech uh, comic quality to it. But you can see underneath, it's also it's also an attack on conformity. It's also an attack upon authoritarianism. It's also so, as you say, the the irony. The other thing is, I would guess again from my experience from maybe 89 to 94 is that many of the young people, because I was visiting schools, hundreds of schools, uh, many of the young people who were interested uh, in technology, they had their parents' support. And so, and, and so these were people who were you know, highly educated, they were humanists, whatever they were teaching in the, in the gymnasium. And uh, I, I, I think that that's, that's also behind it. Hmm. Is that in the same way the young radicals in America, uh, the, the book that Kenneth Keniston did, they're not in revolt for their identity against their parents. They're in identification with those values of the parents. So in some ways, that might be something to explore. Mm -hmm. Their parents. Yeah. And the I mean the higher edu I mean the education system was. Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, especially in technical uh, subjects. I mean, the humanities were kind of totally devastated uh, by the regime, but the technical subjects were not considered, um, you know, ideologically subversive. So they most there was a lot of continuity, um, and uh, they they were they were pretty high quality. Yeah. Was everything exchanged on hard media like cassettes, or were there also modems and BBSs? Only in the nineties. Yeah, in the 80s, it was all uh, physical media. There, there were probably no floppy disks yet, so everything was, was on cassette. They, 
very few people have floppies. Yeah. No, it really came in in, in 1991. Besides Robinson. <laughs> Good to know. As a matter of fact, no, we, we, you know, we set up, we set up distribution centers throughout the Czechoslovakia. So every, every the major, the five major universities, the medical schools, we made sure they had SEs. Uh, and, be, and they needed the imaging because if, right? And, and in fact, I think until a few years ago, uh, one of those SEs is still being used as a, was still being used as a server at, uh, yeah, no, at the rec drive. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, running, why get rid of it? Um, I have another question that maybe is a little bit tangential, but um, your kind of mention of punk rock um, and also your mention of uh, Ataris from that era mm -hmm. made me think about um, the fact that a lot of early electronic dance music and kind of underground electronic music was being made on the Ataris, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if, you know, within, you know, after 1989, um, you know, in, into the early 90s, whether that was, whether this became kind of a, a the kind of networks that you're describing mm. became a foundation for those kinds of cultural developments. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Some of the some of the people that I was uh, mentioning, including František Fuka, who was on the on the picture on, on the photo from the club, um, were writing music on computers. So he was writing his own compositions for games, but then he was also writing his own compositions just uh, independent of any games. And um, he went on to become a film journalist, but he also uh, scores films. Um, so so he he's he's still a musician. And uh, there is an interesting connection between this gaming communities and musical communities through the demo scene. So there was, uh, you know, based off of these gaming scenes, there were these groups of you know, young hackers and programmers who were uh, creating these audio, like amazing audiovisual kind of programs on computers, including image and music. And um, and they they were, I think they were very much. Uh, Kind of, um, uh, they very much kind of affiliated themselves with with the kind of growing electronic music genres. Absolutely, yeah. they used yeah, they used Atari's, they used Commodore 64s, uh, but also the Spectrum. You could also make music on that. Yeah. Question. We're right up against time, so um, please join me in <laughs> thanking you. Thank, thank you for coming.